0: Matthew 2 is where we're um, listening together. So if you wanted to open that, that would be great. Matthew chapter 2. I um, follow some people on uh, the WWW who are um, particular followers of a very freakish genius of Christian theology and thinking. I don't understand him in all points, and I don't agree with him in some points, but uh, they're interesting guys to listen to. And one of them put up a thing this week where he said, I could do without the star and the three wise men. I thought that was interesting. What do we lose, really, if we don't have the story of the star and the three wise men? Anything significant? I mean, what possible use is it to know about this story? It's an odd story. But then lots of stuff in the Bible is odd because it was from 2,000 years ago. And, but I just thought we'd spend some time and try to think, what is the, what's it about, really? What does it mean? What's the significance of it? Because the 12 days of Christmas, they start with Christmas Day, as I've discovered, and they finish on the day where we celebrate the three wise guys arriving. Epiphany, right? When he is revealed to the world. And in many countries, the Day of the Three Wise Men is a bigger celebration than Christmas. Quite a number of countries in Europe, but they make more of that. When Jesus begins to be not just born, but realised and people taking on board what he's about with the three wise men. Let's pray now as we look at Matthew 12, Matthew 2, that we'd hear God's voice. Father, thank you for this time of year that reminds us of the extraordinary stoop Uh, that you did in your son, that he should become one of us into a deeply broken and violent world as it was in his day. And we do pray you would send your Holy Spirit. You've promised that you'll give him if we ask, so we ask for his work um, through me, in spite of me, through your word, in each of our minds and hearts. We pray for your help now in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, there are all sorts of um, fun and games about... um, uh, there's all sorts of little jokes being made about various songs, and this is, this is I think, quite a fun little one. It's irrelevant, really, but just um, how do we get silent night? I don't know if you can see it. But Joseph speaking to his wife, don't be mad, I said I was sorry, I should have made reservations. Talk to me, Mary. Mary, Mary, I'm fine. And apparently, it led to a silent night. Ha, 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 ha. This is a reminder that, of course, The days, the days of Christmas, the twelve days start with Jesus' birth. In case you were as uneducated as I am, I do like this one. Uh, It's an old set of jokes. If the if the three wise men had been three wise women, that um, all these things that might have been better, they might have got there on time. They would have asked for directions. They could have helped with the delivery of the baby. They would have bought practical gifts like nappies or something like that, uh, etc., etc. So, what is the significance of these guys? You'll, You'll often know these pictures of. Um, of the stable, and Mary, baby Jesus, Joseph, sometimes an angel, the shepherds and the wise men. Uh, we've got a little nativity thing up outside which has the same sort of thing happening. All these pictures, this quite lovely little one here in blue with the shepherds coming from one side and the wise men on the other. Now, you, you'll know, almost certainly, at least many of you will know, this, is of course, is, is an artistic sort of... Uh, it's a thing that the artists have done To help us, it's um, it's license because you know that they didn't happen on the same night. It's very clear when you read Matthew two, as you heard it, that Jesus was probably under two, but he was not a baby when the wise men came. And we're even told quite explicitly that, unlike uh, in Luke chapter two, when the wise men arrive, they don't go to a stable or anything like that. They go to a house. Verse eleven: On coming to the house they saw the child with his mother Mary even that word is often used of a slightly older child rather than the word that would just be used exclusively of a baby so this is they don't happen on the same night no harm done i think in bringing them together so we can see because these are the two visitors who come these are the two groups of people who get a, a personalized invitation to come now i want us before we actually sort of sort of get our teeth into this one of the problems with the wise men stuff is there's an awful lot of interesting questions we could waste time with. It wouldn't, feel, it wouldn't be boring because they're quite fascinating queries and questions. Did they come from Arabia or did they come from Persia, which is probably more likely, or did they come, one of them perhaps even, from China? I have a friend who's written a little book um, based on his discovery that the, the, the senior astronomer or astrologer of the imperial kingdom in China went missing for six years, right around this period. So I'm not suggesting the guy was from China, I've got no idea. But he could be. It certainly is east. And it would explain why they got there two years late, because that's a long walk. But but all sorts of interesting possibilities. But frankly, if it's not in the text, it's irrelevant. And if I gave you a talk or if you went to a Bible study, you might be going to those Bible studies where there's someone who just loves to give all sorts of fascinating but fundamentally irrelevant details, theories, possibilities about stuff in the Bible. Can I suggest that's not all that helpful? Nothing wrong with asking the questions, but if we're trying to hear what is God saying through this rather than, ooh, it's an interesting theory. I used to have a game which I, I lost and I'm glad I did. It was called Bible Trivia. Something about the title used to make me Uncomfortable. I don't like the idea of linking Bible with trivia, all sorts of other things. Fine, but we just need to. We're not going to spend time on interesting distractions, because it would just give you the delusion of hearing a sermon that was worth hearing. Well, really, everything that we need to know will be given to us in the text. We don't need to know how many there were. We don't need to know if they come from Arabia, which they might have come from, or Persia, more likely, or China, which is very unlikely. But it'd be fun if it was true. So we're not going to sort of engage in too much stuff that's interesting but not important. Um, Well, let's have a look at the first possible lesson we could get from this account. And that is to notice who gets a personalised invitation to Jesus' birthday. What sort of people does God say, I want you and you there? So I will personally look after you arriving. We know from, as we looked at Luke chapter 2 um, for Christmas, those terrific verses that where, where the angels say, Good news, great joy, all people. Good news, great joy, all people. Because it's very rare for any bit of news to bring joy to all people. Most things that are good news for one are bad news for others. The Boxing Day test and things like that. You know, one side is happy, 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 and the other side is complaining. That's how, it, or, you know, is sad. But this is good news for all people. And we have an example of those who get special notice. We, we looked at Luke chapter 2, and that basically loses. Right? The shepherds. It's odd because in the Old Testament, God is sometimes pictured as a shepherd and King David had been a shepherd before he became the shepherd of the nation. But at this particular time in in Jewish culture, shepherds were held to be under great dubious suspicion. Uh, As I mentioned uh, in in those Christmas days, if you were going to court and your only witnesses were shepherds, you didn't have witnesses, because they they were just considered to be um, of people of such sort of consistently low character. So it's fascinating that the only people that the angelic choir visits, long, tri- long trip, one concert, a couple of nobodies, probably people who could barely sing or wouldn't know a treble clef from a bass, whatever, and yet they get you know, the full celestial choir and the invitation to go, and they go. So it's interesting. So what it's saying is no matter how lowly you might feel that you are, how disrespected by others or even by yourself you are invited to come and enjoy what this baby will do for us but these guys in Matthew 2 after Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea during the time of King Herod Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked where is the one who's been born King of the Jews we saw his star when it rose and we have come to worship him the Magi and the Magi is a funny word. It's just just a refusal to translate the word in the original. Um, It's it's just the the Greek word, same letters, magi. It's it's the basis of words like magistrate. It's the basis of words like magician. And the magi, as far as we can tell, they were originally a small tribe, a highly respected tribe of deeply religious, well-educated people who became the professional advisors to the Babylonian and to the Persian court, They were like Professor So-and-So from ANU. Uh, They were elite, well-educated, highly regarded people. Many of the kings of Babylon and Persia would not make a decision without the advice and wisdom of the Magi. Uh, We run into them uh, uh, a number of times in the book of Daniel. Daniel opposes them a few times, and in the end he becomes the head honcho over them as the wisest man in the kingdom because he listens to God rather than other foolishness. And this is probably why the Magi had any interest at all in Israel, which was a nothing nation in those days. It's a tiny little nation, constantly beaten up by various um, heavyweight contenders in, in the politics of that day. But these guys are winners. These guys are the intellectuals. These are the smartest guys in the room by far. These are the guys that we're told in 1 Corinthians, not many wise. Not many of the leading people became Christians. Um, Paul wants to stress that God's way. Let me read it to you. This is God's way so often. He doesn't choose the obvious to work with and through. In fact, he works in spite of them. 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Listen to this. The message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing God has said, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the intelligence of the intelligent, I will frustrate. Where is the wise person? Where is the teacher of the law? Where is the philosopher of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not come to know him, God was pleased through the foolishness of what we preached to save those who believe. Brothers and sisters, think of what you were when you were called to him. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. Important, isn't it? Not many. It doesn't say none of you were clever, but not many. So in a gathering like this. Maybe that's me and two or three others, I guess. (laughs) Um, But, you know, it's just saying that that's that's the way God often works. You can see it, can't you? Because in the true great festivals that our culture still notices... Focus around a baby and a man on a cross. We, we may think that's normal, but it's not. Uh, I can't think of any other system of belief or whatever that, that makes its big days about a baby and about a man dying on a cross. It's weird. It is not a human made religion. It just seems unusual. But what we're saying here is there are losers in Luke chapter 2 and these great winners. The professors. We also see that in Matthew chapter 1, the emphasis is very clearly on the Jewishness of Jesus. Matthew 1 1. This is the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. So it's really rooting Jesus into Jewish promises and fulfillment in God. And in chapter 2, it it quickly says, and it's universal. So it's not sort of pokey and parochial, it's deeply Jewish, but it's also universal. And so these great wise ones are called. So that's the first thing. Who gets an invite? The bookends. The great wise men and the shepherds. And anyone in between falls into the good news, all people. So that's the first thing I think we can see from the call of these strange uh, characters. Secondly... How do you find Jesus? How do you actually get to meet him and to know him, not just know a little bit about him? Well, both with the shepherds and with the wise men, the initiative is entirely with God. It is as Jesus says, You did not choose me, I chose you. So the wise men are doing their wise man thing, and suddenly things happen. And look, the way the, the Gospels speak of it, it may, it may have been a star moving, although the star is only once mentioned as moving, and that's after they've been in Jerusalem. Uh, scholars suggest it may well have been just from their looking at, at, at their maps. Pisces, apparently, the, what, you know, that sort of uh, symbol in the astrology stuff, was seen to be the nation of Israel. And in the middle of that at that time, and Copernicus, the, the very famous... Astronomer from a long time ago was the first guy to work out Jupiter and Saturn were in some strange alignment at that period, would have come up right in what the, the ancients would have seen was Pisces. So it may have just been, it rose in their map saying, Oh, right, Jupiter's the great star of king, the great planet of kingship. Something's happening in uh, Daniel's old home territory. We're going. Something significant. But it's God who starts it, as it is with the shepherds and the choruses. And so what's the way to get to know God? That when you get some hunch, some sneaking suspicion, some thirst within your, within your own worldview, no matter how weakly Jesus may feature in it, to respond to it honestly and with integrity. I remember a friend of mine, who, who his, he says his, his journey to, to come to know and trust Christ began in a change room after the New South Wales weightlifting and bodybuilding competition that he'd trained for for years and years and years. He'd won. I mean, he'd been training for this for ages. And he really thought this would, this would give him the joy that he knew was simply absent in his life. And he just, he, he painted a picture of himself sitting on this wooden bench, looking at this thing, waiting. And that was for him was being the same, obviously this whole exercise I'm on is wrong. I wonder if there's another way to be human and to make it work. It's to be people who respond honestly, as the wise men did. So they got up and left, you know, about 800 miles probably. It's a long, 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 long walk. Whether or not they're riding on camels, which kind of sounds cool, but they would have almost certainly had footmen as well, perhaps even soldiers to guard them, because it was, it was dangerous to travel that part of the world, and particularly if you're carrying frankincense gold and myrrh. So they would have been travelling at a steady pace for months and months. They were doing other stuff at home. They had lawns that needed to be mowed and gutters that needed to be cleared out. Right? And, and I don't know how happy their wives were at this point with this. But they were doing stuff and suddenly they thought, right, pretty clear God is, God's doing something in the land of the Jews. And they respond to it Honestly. And that's rarer than we think. I think to respond honestly to nudges and, and perceptions of truth is quite rare. Sometimes you see quite publicly how dishonest people can be. And I think often unconsciously, I was watching a, um, a discussion between Richard Dawkins and a few other people. Richard's the um, old biologist. Uh, well, he's more an educator in biology, but he's uh, wrote the famous book, um, The God Delusion. If you've read it, you'll know this because he, he completely gets this. He, he puts um, this story in Luke's gospel and, and explains why Luke made the story up. I think, you genius. Luke made it up to fit him with Luke's theology. It's in Matthew, you dill. Um, and his editor should be sacked. Someone should have picked up the error. But in this really interesting discussion, you can probably find it on YouTube. Dawkins is being asked, What would it take to convince you that there was a God? Right? Now, if you're a scientist, you, you work on this here, a thing needs to be disprovable. Otherwise, it hardly works in the realm of empirical science. So what would be the thing that could prove that your particular beliefs, which you've become so famous for, is wrong? And it was a really... Because in the end, nothing. And in the end, the professor actually admitted nothing. Because he said no matter... Even if it was writing in the sky or all sorts of crazy... You know, miracles. He said, I oh, could I might have just gone insane, or we might have all gone crazy. Something was in the water. And I, I don't think he actually heard himself. He probably went home and watched it and thought, Oh my goodness, what was I doing? Because that is completely lacking in integrity. To say I hold a view that's a minority view, that many of the great minds in science have disagreed with him completely. He's been in all sorts of debates with other academics who I think have just humiliated him in any logical sense. But he's saying, it does not matter what, I am not changing. You can't pretend to be a logical, rational truth seeker and hold that view. So the thing with the, with the wise men is they are willing to follow wherever they think the truth is leading them. So they get up and they go to the land of Israel, which they would almost certainly have never been to before. And they get there and they get to Jerusalem because that's the obvious place to go. You're looking for a king, king of the Jews. The obvious place to go is to the capital. So they go to sort of Israel's equivalent of Canberra. And they call, well not the Prime Minister, Herod hears what's going on and he is disturbed and the word for disturbed is a very violent word which fits for Herod. Um, there's no record in any of the sort of historical scraps we've got from around that time from Josephus or other people of this event, which is hardly surprising. And when you've got someone like Herod who kills two or three of his own sons, has his favourite wife executed, why? Why? Because other people liked her as well. I mean, he became increasingly dangerously paranoid. So the Russian, the uh, Caesar said, better to be Herod's pig than Herod's son. Even on his deathbed, when he knew he was dying, he was giving orders for members of his family to be executed. He was so fiercely committed to staying in charge and being the number one person in the universe around him. And he, he hears that there's a king of the Jews being born. That is not good news because he knows that he hasn't had a kid in the last few days. So he calls these people together, and he does. He called together all the the chief priests and the teachers of the law. And Herod asked them, where is the Messiah to be born? He's he's made the link between king of the Jews, these stars, wise men coming, and not just any old king, but the long-awaited king who would bring all things to the good. Where is the Messiah to be born? The scribes. And the teachers of the law, they get out the Bible and they read the part that was, um, as you heard from Micah chapter 5, in Bethlehem in Judea, they reply, for this is what the prophet said, but you, Bethlehem, you're by no means least among the rulers of Judah. Out of you will come a ruler, a shepherd for my people. So they go from sort of following their hunches as honestly as they can. They finish up exactly where I know many of you finished up, as you were, certainly I finished up, as God was bringing me from the darkness to himself. You finish up with the scriptures. You finish up with the book of God, the great signpost. The Bible doesn't point to itself, it points to Jesus. So they, they read the scriptures and what, are the, what do these guys do? They head off to Bethlehem. Herod, of course, interviews them, as you heard, and he says, hey, look, um, when you find him, come back and tell me so I can go and worship him too. Um, again, I was listening to Sam Harris the other day, another sort of well-known atheist, and he was, um, he was uh, saying that Hitler was, you know, driven a bit by Christianity. And I think Hitler was driven by Christianity in the same way as King Herod loved the baby King... No, he, he did say things, particularly early on in his political career, that were kind of nice about the generalised Christianity in Germany. Although, in Mein Kampf alone, he's got a number of statements where he describes just how much he hates Christianity. Um, and he describes Christianity as the, one of the most... Uh, terrible things ever laid on the human heart because it tells us to care for the weak, which he wasn't too keen on. Um, But to suggest that Hitler, is a bit like suggesting that Herod was really looking for Jesus because look at what he says. Search diligently for the child as soon as you find him so I can come and worship him too. He had no intention of worshipping him. What fool takes the, the statements of someone like Herod as if it's a literal statement of the honesty of his heart? He's scheming. He was very good at scheming. That's how he got to where he was. So, friends, how do we find Jesus? Well, we follow honestly whatever sort of hunches and suspicions we have, and we finish up with the Scriptures. And what do these guys do when they get the message from the Scriptures? They head off to Bethlehem, unlike Herod. And as we'll come back, unlike the religious experts of the day. It's only about 12 kilometres away. But they don't bother to go. But the wise men go. So who gets an invite? The extreme edges and anyone in between. How do we find Jesus? We respond honestly to the hunches that we have about God. And then we eventually find ourselves confronted by the scriptures that point us to Jesus. No matter how costly it was. Because it was costly for these guys. And the last main thing for us is this. What's the evidence that someone has really met Jesus? What's the sort of how can you know if someone has actually come face to face with Jesus Christ, the Son of God? There are a number of things. The Bible will sometimes direct us to how we live, how we love, who we love. But I think in these ones we've just got a very helpful little insight. Verse 10. When they saw the star, they were overjoyed. On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary. That's just an interesting way to put it. It shows where the focus of this text is. The star of the story is not the star. The star of the story is, of course, Jesus. You'd normally say he saw the mother with the baby. That's the normal way that they would express it. But he saw the child with his mother Mary. And they bowed down and worshipped not them but him. Then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold, frankincense and myrrh. So what is the evidence that you've really found Jesus? It is they bowed down and worshipped him. It's not an interesting, respectful discussion about Jesus. It's a heartfelt act of worship on your knees, face to the ground as well they have found something enormous and glorious and they're overwhelmed and they're on their knees. Now, I've often thought about this, how peculiar it would be if someone brought a baby up the front here for a baptism, as we enjoy sometimes, and instead of us baptising it, we all fell on our knees and worshipped it. I mean, it's one thing to love babies, but these wise men, these great men, who are used to being treated with enormous care and respect, They seem to forget themselves and on their knees they go and worship the baby. I think the evidence for having met Jesus is some strong sense of, my goodness, what is this? This is far better than I could have imagined. This is not just true. It's true and wonderful and beautiful and spellbinding. And so they fall down and they worship. They get over themselves and that's what they do. And they give. They give their gold, their frankincense and their myrrh. Now we're going to sing a song that I think quite rightly in a few moments suggests to us what the gold, the frankincense and the myrrh represent. They may just be three very expensive gifts because they're all very expensive. I remember when I worked at this boys school for a couple of years, there was a young lad there who was, it was a lot of fun in class. But and he, he, um, in the end he left the school earlier than he or his parents had planned. And, um, but he did ask one of the memorable questions in, in scripture class, and that was he said, um, he said, sir, he said, uh, was Jesus' family wealthy? I said, no, no. They weren't poor, poor, but they weren't wealthy. Um, he said, what happened to the gold and the frankincense and the myrrh? I thought, now, that is a question I've never heard before, right? I said, my guess is when you head off as a refugee to Egypt to another country with another language, it's very helpful to have very concentrated, expensive things like gold or frankincense or myrrh. The Ian Powell guess, and it's worth two, Bob, is that's probably what the family lived on when they fled, when Herod tried to kill all the babies. In fact, did kill all the under two-year-olds in that town. He was going for Jesus' neck. But they gave. They gave. They didn't just give the gold and the frankincense, which is probably to do with God. They used to use it as as an incense up to God. And the myrrh, which was a perfume that was used for a number of things, but it's specifically mentioned in John 19 as something that was used around Jesus' body and his death. It was a, a perfume for dying bodies as well. So it's often been thought to be to do with his coming suffering and death. But, of course, the other gift they bring is their presence, I want to stress to you: these are real people working at the highest level of a very powerful empire, but they just go walkabout for what is almost certainly a couple of months. It wasn't that they had nothing to do. It's like the shepherds; they leave the flock. Very dangerous to do in that, but but something so overwhelming do they meet in Jesus? So important, so wonderful that all prior sort of convictions and concerns are overwhelmed. So that's what the wise men do, the indication that they've met the Son of God, even though they could barely have understood him. See, you and I, we know much more about how wonderful Jesus is than they did. They had the slightest inkling of who this might be. But you know about the amazing, powerful miracles he did. You know his courage before those who hated him and hated others. You know that he died for people like you and for me to take our sins. You know that he rose from the dead. Walked out of the tomb alive. Right? We know much more that should have us on our faces before Jesus. These guys knew very little. So we've got um, Christmas here. I think this is quite a helpful little um, picture that I think a church put together that you go from the baby and the real the, the significance of the baby coming, the reason the baby came, the reason that rocket took off right? and left stage one it was because it was going to the cross. They didn't know that this great one had come to die, and uh, that this Great One was, in fact, greater than the whole universe, this tiny little baby, and yet he was the creator of all things and the judge of all things. We know that. We understand that. So worship should come fairly straightforwardly. The, The evidence that you found Jesus is a somewhat undisciplined at times response to Jesus, Uh, A joy inexpressible and full of glory. It's interesting that in this period, both the shepherds and the angels and the wise men speak of their exceeding joy. In my own Bible reading yesterday, I was reading through the end of Matthew. And again, what's the word that's going on after the resurrection? Joy. Because this is is not just news. This is not just true. It's beautiful truth. There's nothing like it. That God should come down to this broken, vicious, violent world and they tried to kill him as a baby and it just kept on going through the rest of his life until finally he was executed. God comes to do that. God comes as a baby so he's not too scary so we can draw near in his humility. The evidence having found Jesus is some response of worship. I, I can't remember who the people were involved and in. I couldn't find the story. I read it some years ago and, you know, psh- but there are some fairly prominent uh, politicians from the 19th century when England ruled the world. And they were having a discussion, probably over a port at one of those outrageous clubs that I see on the movies. That, um, and they discuss, someone said, what do you think you would do if, and they named a couple of famous people. You know, Aristotle came in. What, what would you do and what would you say? And they asked, you know, the Duke of Wellington and a few other people, what would you do, what would you do if he came in? And most of them, they, they said they would stand up or they would bow, you know, and, and then someone said, after they'd been playing this game for a little while, what do you think we would do if Jesus of Nazareth walked into the room? And there was that uncomfortable feeling that there is in many Anglo-Celtic places when the Jesus question comes up. And then one of them said, I don't think we'd say anything. I think we'd be on our faces in worship and in silence. How do you know if you found Jesus? It's some sort of sense of the wonder and amazement that this great one knows and loves us in our smallness and comes to live amongst us and even to die for us. This, um, uh, I don't know if you've ever, probably many of us have never watched the old Ben Hur movie. It's fun when you, when you watch a movie like this and you have to get out the old reel and you know, put your torch through it and, and make it work. Um, they're so much slower than modern movies. Um, but you know, it's written by a guy called Lou Wallace. Lou Wallace was a, a, a Southern general in the American Civil War, and he was a cynic about Christianity. And he's done this, and you'll know because a few people have done this, and it never kind of works out as, as they hope. He decided he would do the research and write the book that would finally put this silly myth to death. And as has happened to a number of people who moved the stone and other books like that, he, in, he became a Christian. He realised that he was real and he did what he said he did and he walked out of the tomb alive. And he wrote the story Ben-Hur, in which Jesus pops, I've not read the book, Jesus pops up in the movie near the beginning and the end. And uh, Ben-Hur, uh, the, that guy, is it, he's, it is, that is what he's called, isn't it? Ben-Hur? Good. Good. Um, he has an experience of Jesus and he ends up at the cross of Jesus and uh, the guy who turns up next to him and this is just a fantasy but it's a, a literary um, thing there is one of the wise men the one whose name starts with B I've forgotten which one that is That's, we don't know but he turns up as well and they're talking together watching Jesus being put to death and the wise man, because the story is that the wise man had gone home with his mates uh, made up with his wife and as an older man came to see what, what became of this impressive baby we worshipped. And um, he arrives at the time when Jesus is being put to death. And Ben-Hur doesn't, can't make much sense of it. But the old wise man speaks of him taking our sin on him. That was, I guess, why we were brought to worship him. And he speaks of Christ dying for those two guys and for others. So the evidence that you've been found by Jesus or you found him, is this worship, it's the giving of our best to him. And in verse 12, just in passing, the, the obedience. The angel says, don't go back to Herod. And at some, some great personal risk, they sneak off and don't go back to Herod as they were told. One of the parts of becoming Christian is, of course, we become obedient to God even when he asks us to do odd things. Well, friends, by way of conclusion, as you may have noticed from the kids' talk, if you hadn't been aware of it, this is the end of the year. Uh, so in terms of your next year, can I suggest you can either have a Herodian year, a scribal year, or a wise year. And I want to encourage you to have a wise year. A Herodian year is when you, and I don't know how many people in church do this, there may be some of us, who spend our life trying to fend off the truth of Jesus. Um, like, but, you know, where, where we will, we just... We'll kill the baby if we have to. We are determined to, to maintain our own rulership and ownership of our own petty little lives. My opinion shall rule. Any opinion that disagrees with me and my culture shall be corrected. Right? I am the king. Herod was a ruthless and very successful but ugly king. I want to suggest that's not the sort of year you want to live, but you can if you like and spend your time fending off the words of God and the Son of God secondly you can have a scribal year these guys are fascinating and they're perhaps closer to us Herod called together all the people the chief priests and the teachers of the law and asked them where the Messiah was to be born in Bethlehem in Judea they replied and they created the scriptures these are guys who know the Bible they're experts on the scripture they read it they study it but they have no interest in the heart in going where it points them to It's become sort of just an interesting thing that they're showing their cleverness in and gaining their status through. They have the right answers, and they're building on sand because there's evidently something is happening that God is doing. These guys turn up. It's a 12-kilometre walk. They could have hired a donkey or a horse or whatever, but they don't even go. They don't leave the capital. Their life is fundamentally undisturbed. This will just be a story they tell about those weird guys we met from Persia or China. They're interested at the brain level. They're like, as it says in Isaiah, these people they draw near to me with their mouths, but their hearts are far from me. Now that, I think, is a thing we're more in danger of, that that we just find the whole God-Bible thing and theology thing fascinating, and we, we know the right answers, We're all ready to do the right thing, but we actually don't act on it. We stay in Jerusalem. Can I encourage that? Don't let that, that's as sad as anything, to be so close, to be playing with it, but not to actually be affected by the heart where you actually go where the truth points and follow the words of God and the life of Jesus. And the third one is, of course, I want to urge myself to have a wise year. So we should finish up at the end of this next year, different people to what we started. Because we'll we'll listen to the scriptures and we'll act on it. If it calls on us to change, we won't try and twist the scriptures so it says what it should say, but was so it right? Okay, I hadn't realised that. And away we go. We draw near to God. The promise in James, if you draw near to God, he will draw near to you. There are guys like A. W. Tosen that who suggest you're as close to God as you really want to be. You might be as close to God as you'd like to be, but you're as close to God as you really want to be. The wise men left everything and followed. Bethlehem, off they go to this nowhere town they'd never heard of, they'd heard of Jerusalem, but they go where the scriptures have pushed them. They live with inconvenience, they live with danger. It was much safer staying in Persia than going for that long months and months of ride. So to have a wise year... so when you read the scriptures, say, right, where, where is this pointing me to go? What would happen if I took this seriously and heard it as the voice from God and not just an interesting thing that I as a Christian person play with? I don't have any particular reason to think any of you are particularly like this, but I think it's a danger for all of us. That's why Jesus tells that somewhat scary story at the end of the Sermon on the Mount about the people who hear his word. These are people who've gone to the trouble to go and listen to him on the Sermon on the Mount but there are people who hear but do not do. See, they're building on sand. The wise way, Jesus says, the wise person, the wise man, the wise woman, the wise kid hears the word and does it. So that's my suggestion. Don't have a Herodian year. Don't have a scribal year. But go for a wise year. Because that is where blessing is found. Right? That's where the great discoveries, like the wise men had, are discovered and enjoyed. Well, let's pray. Father, we do thank you for this strange story of these strange men who come from wherever they came from, but led and inspired and agitated by you. Thank you for their good and noble hearts in being willing to follow at remarkable inconvenience and even danger. And thank you that they met your son and worshipped him. Uh, We thank you, Lord, for all the opportunities we have to grow wise by the listening to your scriptures and pray that you would deliver us from being like the scribes and the teachers who knew so much that was right about your word and about what you were going to do, and yet their hearts seemed unmoved. So, Lord, we pray for your blessing that we would grow wise. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.